You did it. Good job. Perfect. Hey, wasn't that something? Let's give him another hand. Yeah. Fantastic job. Wow, that was really, really good. We're going to have to get another bus. They're going to be on the tour, right? That was really great. Thanks, Jeff, and all the volunteers. All the parents, grandparents, thank you so much. What a beautiful display. That was very moving, really. That was great. Thank you. Well, we uh, are near the end now of this series. We've been on the final last sayings of Jesus as he hung on the cross. And so we will note the last two phrases that he used from the cross today, see what we might learn, very powerful lessons in these final last words. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to two references. One is the Gospel of John, chapter 19. I'll read one verse there, verse 30. And then over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, and beginning at verse 43. Our custom is to stand to hear God's Word, so as you're able, thank you for doing that. Here is John's Gospel, chapter 19, and verse 30. When he had received the drink... Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then over to Luke's Gospel 23, and I'll begin at 43. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurions, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. I mean, God enlightened and inspires so much. Now, last week, we tried to imagine what the atmosphere was like around the cross during the crucifixion. There, there was anger in the, in the atmosphere, in the ethos, in the character of this, this immediate presence of the crucifixion. There was, there was bitterness. There was resentment. There was hate. People were hurling insults at Jesus. They were castigating him. They were, they were spatting upon him. All of, these, all of these things implying a mob mentality, maybe even a demonized darkness uh, that almost had about it a gravitational pull into that kind of evil and that kind of darkness. And so not only did they want to physically kill Jesus, but it seemed that they wanted to completely obliterate him, annihilate him from existence. And so this is what happened for these first few hours, from 9 o'clock in the morning until about noon. But now we find in our text that at noon, darkness began to cover the earth. So dark clouds now begin to come upon the horizon and over this location, darker and darker and darker. We've all experienced this uh, with a weather pattern. 
If you have a bright sunny day and you have a serious storm that is building and building, sometimes you hear it coming for a long, long time and you see it then coming and it just builds and builds and the, and the world gets quiet. You know, the wind stops blowing for a moment. The birds stop singing. Uh, nature starts hunkering down because you know something is about to hit. And this, not only is it getting quiet and very, very dark, but people are beginning to sense a foreboding, an eeriness. Something's not right. People begin to run from the location. They, they say out loud, maybe this is the judgment of God. Maybe we're in trouble. And so they're fleeing. The, the earth is also beginning to shake. Just, a, just an earthquake, just a, a tremor. The earth is trembling itself. And so people are, are put on edge. And this is where we hear Jesus say these final two statements. First, he says, it is finished. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. Now let's consider these two statements and what we might learn in this particular context. On your outline, you'll see the first point that I want to make, simply this phrase, it is finished. It is finished. Now when Jesus said it, it's almost a a tone of, of completion, a tone of triumph, if you will, a tone of victory, you know, mission accomplished. It's finished. So we want to ask the question today, what's finished? What is it? What is happening here? What is going on that Jesus would proclaim it accomplished, finished, complete? Uh, Recently, Beth and I were watching uh, two of our granddaughters and one of them, about four years old at the time, was being tucked into bed, and we asked her to pray. And so she began to do her evening prayers. And she got to this phrase in the middle of her prayer. She said, and thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sins. That's pretty good, isn't it, for a four-year-old? That's pretty good. And so we is up as Jesus finishes his suffering. And so what do we know about this? What do we understand about Jesus' death and how it brings to us forgiveness for our sins? It's interesting to note that that whatever's going on here on the cross and through the life of Jesus, uh, no one theory or one, one utilized metaphor is going to be able to summarize everything that's going on here. In fact, in John's gospel alone, we see phrases like the atoning sacrifice. Uh, atonement, a theological term. Think of it this way, being at one with God. Atonement, being at one with God. And so we know that God has, in Jesus, pulled down barriers between us and himself. And so we have access to God and relationship with God. We've had our sins atoned for so that we now have a relationship with God. Substitutionary sacrifice is another phrase. And so it's another theory about, about the work of Jesus on the cross. We all know what a substitute is. You have substitute teachers. You put a sub into the game for the starters. In Jesus' case, he took our place. What we deserved in terms of death and hell, Jesus subbed in on our behalf. He took our place. So the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus is another image or metaphor of what's happening here. Phrases like a demonstration of divine love or or practical 
sacrificial love, God's ultimate triumph, the dramatic reversal of events of Eden following the disobedience of Adam and Eve. All of these kinds of concepts and images and pictures are depicted just in John's gospel alone. You go through the whole New Testament and you have this doctrine uh, revealing Jesus as a redeemer and a savior and a high priest and the paschal and atoning lamb. He's a liberator. He's a king. All of these images, all of these is being brought together when Jesus says it is finished. And here's what we know. We know that whatever human malady we may face, Jesus has finished the work necessary to satisfy it. We know, and especially at the highest order, that the sin in our lives, our natural rebellion toward God, not only the things we've done, but the things we've left undone that have separated us from God, has now been perfectly satisfied through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Those sins which which caused a barrier to exist between us and God, our Creator and ourselves, have now been removed because of the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant that for everyone, for all time, all of the barriers have now been removed. You can now have a relationship with God and be at peace with him forever. Praise God for his atoning work. (laughs) Wonderful. The crucifixion is almost like a sculpture. When you look at it from one angle, it is so horrific. It It is so repulsive that you can barely look at it. It's just too much. But if you get at it from another angle and get a different perspective and look at it carefully that way, you see that it is so beautiful. It is so wonderful. It is so glorious that that you have to resist the urge to fall on your knees and on your face and say, thanks be to God for his amazing love. Making my forgiveness available. It is finished then points us toward spiritual existential truths about love and redemption and grace and liberation, saving us, saving our relationship with God and others, and indeed saving the whole world. When Jesus said it is finished, we find in that an all-encompassing salvation. The Apostle Paul said it, summarized it very well in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'll put that verse on the screen. Many of you know this verse. It says, if Jesus finished work on the cross, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God to liberate to everyone who believes. Praise God. All right, here's the second thing that we learn is happening now, and that is that the temple curtain is torn. Jesus breathed his last. There is a curtain in the temple. Now let me try to explain this by helping you visualize. The temple in Jerusalem had the same kind of layout as the tabernacle, this elaborate tent, had in the wilderness under Moses. When they wandered in the Sinai for 40 years, the 12 tribes of Israel would camp in a circle, and right in the middle of this circle, as they would, they would camp, there was this rectangular-shaped uh, outer fence made of garment, poles and lines holding it in place, tall enough you can't see over it. And so it is a rectangular-shaped uh, perimeter barrier. And inside of that rectangular shape is another rectangular shaped tent called the tent of worship, the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now note on one of the, one of the short ends of this rectangular perimeter, there is an opening. It's the way in. 
if you're going to bring your sacrifice, if you're going to bring your prayers, if you're going to bring your worship to God. It's the, it's the center of the, of the culture, of the, of the people in the wilderness, the Israelites. There is just one opening into this area. There are not two. There's not a back door. There are no side doors. There's just one way in. If you want to worship God, you have to go in according to the design. One entrance, one access, one door, one opening. Are you getting the meaning? And so there's just one way. There's just one way in. And as you step by thread, red and, and blue and purple yarns, and also woven into this curtain were angels. So it was very heavy, very thick, very uh, elaborate, no seams in it whatsoever, and it was a separator between people and between God. The Israelites believed, and it was actually true, that this was the place where God dwelt. There was only one item in the Holy of Holies. It was the Ark of the Covenant. This was the wood had orchestrated and ordered Moses to build. It was a, approximately five feet long and a two and a half feet wide, not very large, but the lid upon this box was inlaid in gold, and it had on either end of this lid two angels. And these cherubs were facing each other with their wings forward, their heads bowed and their wings forward, and, and in the middle of this lid, their wingtips would come together. And forming there in their wingtips is what was called the mercy seat. And the Israelites believed that was the throne of God. God dwelt there. And inside of this, inside of this box, this ark, were three items in ancient times. One of the items were the actual stones that Moses had carried down from Mount Sinai, inscribed by the finger of God, the Ten Commandments. And so these stones with the Ten Commandments are in the box, in the ark. A second item was a jar of manna which was the miraculous food, of course, that God provided to the Israelites in the wilderness for their sustenance, and so a reminder of God's provision. And then there was a third item. It was, a, it was Moses' staff, his rod, and which Aaron also occupied, which had budded. This miraculously had budded uh, as a sign of God's favor and blessing. And so these three items were there. And again, this lid over the top. No one was allowed into this space. It wasn't safe to go into this space. Once a year, though, the priest would go in, and he would sacrifice a spotless lamb and then take the blood of this animal. Other priests would lift up this curtain. It was very heavy. They would lift up just a portion of it, and the priest would scoot underneath it with this offering. And he would take this blood, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, on the on the on the lid of the ark. And this would atone for the sins of the people and atone for his own sins. The priests would sometimes, they would place little bells around the bottom of his robe so that the other priests beyond this veil could listen to him. And as long as they heard the bells tinkling in there, they knew that he was still alive. Because there were occasions when the priest wasn't properly prepared in his own life, his own spiritual life, that he would walk into the most holy place and drop dead. Sometimes they would tie a rope on the ankle of the priest, especially if they knew he was a rascal or something. I don't know. <laughs> We're not sure you're coming out alive. <laughs> We're going to tie a rope on you. 
And once the bell stopped ringing, they know well, he didn't make it this time, and they would drag him back out. And so this was the place where God would dwell, the throne of God. And it was not merely symbolic, but the real energy and presence of God was there. And so this veil of separation became a very important, very important feature to this whole construct. Now, in Jesus' day, all of this is now in buildings with bricks and sticks, the temple in Jerusalem, but it's laid out the same. And so it's still the most holy place, the holy of holies. And this veil, this, this fabric curtain, seamless fabric curtain is there. So what we know from the text is that when Jesus breathed his last, watch this now, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Imagine the force it would take to tear this curtain apart. And so God grabs this thing and just pulls it apart and tears it open in the temple. Now there are two fairly clear and obvious conclusions we can draw about the purpose of this tearing. One is it symbolically represented that perhaps not in the physical temple in Jerusalem, but maybe a heavenly one, that Jesus, when he breathed his last, he walks into the very throne room, the very presence of God in heaven, not only as our great high priest, but also the sacrifice. And he brings not the blood of an animal, but he brings his own blood into the very presence of Almighty God. And once and for all sprinkles, sprinkles his own blood on the mercy seat of the throne of God, once and for all satisfying the sins of every person who would ever live. And so this is a great symbolic moment when the veil of the temple, I mean, think about this, how dramatic this is, how, how, how unbelievably powerful this would be, especially for the priests in the, in the area and so forth. And so it not only means that Jesus once and for all has broken through the veil and we no longer have to fear God, but we have access to God. This now means that we can come to God. There is no longer a barrier between us and the very presence of God. So that we have access to Him. This is why Jesus encouraged us to pray. He said, when you pray, pray in my name. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus said, God will grant it to you. And so here we are now in this moment of history. We now have free and confident and bold access. That's what the apostle said. Come boldly now before the throne of grace. Now, if you go in your own name, if I, if I step into the Holy of Holies and I say, hey, Lord, this is Greg. I, you know, I had a few requests. He's going to go, who the heck are you? What are you doing here? You have no business here. This is not safe for you. But if, on the other hand, I'm clothed, watch this out, in the righteousness of God, I'm, I have put on the righteousness of Christ, which has been secured on the cross, and I am clothed in his righteousness, and I walk into the very presence of God in prayer, and I say, Lord, I come to you in Jesus' name. Now, now I have bold and confident access to God. I think one of the, one of the disappointments we may experience in heaven, if there is such a thing, is realizing just how much clear and easy access we had to God himself in Jesus' name. And we didn't take advantage of that access. We didn't take advantage of that unique position. Didn't take advantage of that unique authority that God has given us as his people in the name of Jesus. And so here we are, recognizing in this moment when Jesus said, it is finished, 
the veil of the temple is torn in two. Once and for all, now we can walk boldly and confidently into the very presence of God in Jesus' name. Somebody say amen. Now that's really good. It's really important, really helpful. All right, now let's go to the third thing. Here is the last word of Jesus. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is Jesus' dying prayer. Jesus' dying prayer. Last week we, we noted that when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We discovered that that is a direct quote from Psalm 22. It's a remarkable thing that all of Jews in Jerusalem over Passover would have known that psalm because it was a very popular song at the time. Kind of like our amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You know, it's like everybody knows that, that song. Well, everyone would have known Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so it was especially poignant when Jesus said it. This final word of Jesus also has similar poignancy. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit actually comes from another psalm. It's Psalm 36, or Psalm 31. Look at the first five verses of Psalm 31. I'll put them on the screen for you. In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not let me ever be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden from me, for you are my refuge. And then this last phrase, see it? Into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the last words of Jesus, his last prayer. And it's a prayer that implies absolute confidence and absolute trust in God. There are some, there are some theologians who believe that this Psalm 31 was actually a psalm that Jewish mothers would have used to train their children as a prayer and maybe even as a go-to-bed prayer. And if that's true, and it could very well be true, that Mary, Jesus' mother, actually taught Jesus this prayer when he was a boy. Psalm 31. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It sounds a little bit like the prayer that many of us were taught as children in our culture. Remind you at all? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Yeah, it's, it's very similar. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Yeah. So on the cross, Jesus again was teaching us how to pray, how to connect with God. When we're facing darkness, when we're facing despair, when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, when we're facing the day, this same prayer, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. You ever been in a really tough place, a really dark place? Maybe you're in one right now. This prayer will work. This, this prayer will work in just about any application. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Let's rehearse it together. Let's do it. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. One more time. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Yeah, I find myself more and more being asked uh, by people in our culture today about the end times. Do you think we're near the end of time when Jesus will return? And people are handing me books and giving me DVDs and, and referencing different things. By the way, if you try to hand me something, just a general rule of thumb, if you want to hand your pastor something uh, and you expect it back, 
don't hand it to me. This is fair warning because I can't, I'm not responsible uh, with stuff that people hand me. So if you, if you hand me a book, and I, before I actually reach out my hand to take it, I will ask you, do you want this back? And people don't believe me when I tell them I can't be held responsible for this. They assume I'm a responsible person and that I'll give their stuff back to them. I'm telling you, I won't. And the reason I know that is because I've seen me not do it. So, recently, a woman came up to me and says, you know that, that DVD I gave you about six months ago? Could, that was really important to me. It's the only one I had. Could I have that back? I go, what DVD? Really? I don't know where it is. I have no idea. Not a clue. Not a hunch. So don't give it to me if you want it back. But people have been handing me this stuff about end times. And the question is asked, do you think we're close? Do you think the sign, current signs of the time are in line with biblical prophecy about? The answer is, yeah, it seems like it. But here's, here's my concern. Just about every generation for 2,000 years has been able to look at Bible prophecy and align them with current events of their day and their generation. So just about everyone could say, you know, I think the time's short. Jesus is coming back soon. And everybody's pretty much said that for 2,000 years. Here's what we know for sure about Jesus' return. Nobody knows. No, no person knows the day or the hour of his return. Jesus said that. In fact, Jesus even added this caveat. He said, I don't even know. Only the Father alone knows when I'm coming back. So that's a pretty, pretty narrow field there. So if you run into someone who thinks they know when Jesus is coming back, they don't. They just don't. But here are some general principles that we learn, and this fits right in with Jesus' prayer about trusting God no matter what. There are two primary reasons why these words about Jesus' return are given to us in the Scripture. And the Bible teaches us this. I'll put this statement on the screen for you because I want you to get it. The primary purpose of Jesus' words about his return are twofold. One, to encourage believers in the face of adversity. In other words, bad things are going to happen. Difficult times are going to come. But no matter what happens to you, you can commit yourself into the hands of God. You can trust Him completely with your life and your circumstances. And so you hear phrases like, in the last days, difficult times will come. There will be earthquake and famine and wars and all kinds of Natural disaster, there's, there's all kinds of trouble coming to the earth. But be of good cheer because Jesus is coming. And be of good cheer. Encourage one another. Put boldness and courage and tr confident trust into each other. Uh, encourage each other with these words because God is in control. He'll be, he, and because He's in, in control, you can count on the fact that He is in control right now in your circumstances. So encourage one another with these words. God can be trusted. And then the second reason, you notice, is to invite his hearers to always be ready for the end. So this is the second message that we learn, the general overriding message. The truth of it is that nobody knows when Jesus is coming back and nobody knows when they're going to die. You don't know when you're dying. I don't know when I'm dying. Nobody knows that. So Jesus said, not only be encouraged to trust me when things are hard, but you've always got to be ready just in case. You've got to be ready because you don't know. 
People, people will wake up today in our world and there's going to be a storm, there's going to be a big wave, there's going to be a shaking of the earth, there's going to be some kind of natural phenomenon and people are going to die on the earth today. They woke up today perfectly healthy, maybe young and healthy and vital with their whole life in front of them and, and they're, now they're dead. They had no plans to die today. There will be a hundred people or so die in the United States today in traffic accidents. There will be about 3,000 people today die in the United States of a heart attack. Got up today, not planning to go anywhere. But before the day's over, they've checked out. They're gone. And so here's the admonition from Jesus. When he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That means, listen, you can trust God even in the most dire circumstances and you should be ready. You should be prepared. And living a prepared life means that you're living well and honorably before God, that you're loving people around you as well as you can, and most importantly, you have trusted your life and your eternity into the hands of Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. You're ready. No matter, yourself, no matter what you do, because the world in which we live is inherently unsafe. It's not safe. It's not safe out there. I mean, every one of us who came to church this morning had to live with a high level, a degree of denial. We told ourselves, oh, it'll be fine today. There are no dangers out there. I'm going to get in this 3,500-pound car, and I'm going to start driving about 60 miles an hour uh, into oncoming traffic who are passing in opposite directions with me. But I'm in a state of denial because I know that other person is just as competent as they can be. And there's no way in the world they would ever cross over into my lane going the opposite direction. And so we have to fool ourselves into thinking it's safe. Mm, it's not safe. It's dangerous out there. People are crazy. And you assume everyone's as competent as you when you're driving. It's not true. And so stuff happens. This is the world. You can't protect yourself. You can't protect your children. And it's like the, the predominant instinct you have as a parent, isn't it? I mean, it's like job one, protect those little ones. Protect them. And all of us have that, don't we? We feel it. We don't want to protect these precious little ones. But it doesn't matter what we do or how hard we try. We can't ultimately protect them because it's not safe. The world is not a safe place. So we can't protect ourselves. We can't protect each other. But here's what we can do. We can prepare ourselves. And we can prepare our children. We can prepare our loved ones for the inevitability of our own personal demise when we will go into eternity, either prepared or not prepared. Now hear the wisdom of God. Are you a wise person? If you're a wise person, you'll spend less of your time trying to protect yourself and more of your time preparing yourself because what you're preparing for is a whole lot more important and it's going to last a whole lot longer than what you're protecting so here is Jesus in this final moment not only revealing his own confident trust in his father but offering us the model of what it looks like 
to live in confident hope that God is in control and we are safe when we have trusted our lives to him. Amen? Let's pause and pray just for a moment. Lord, we conclude this uh, series, these words, these sayings, these important last words, famous last words. And we thank you, Lord, how you've taught us in these words how to live and how to pray. We've learned how to pray for those who've wronged us. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. We know even in your agony, O God, that you came to seek and save the law. So we actually enjoin ourselves with the thief on the cross and praying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And to hear your words of promise, okay, today you will be with me in paradise. We heard you ask John to take care of your mother and your mother to take care of John. Lord, we receive your call to care for our parents and our children and also to care for those who are not our parents but who need our children and need our care. Lord, we heard your cry of anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now, Lord, we know the model for how we are to face the dark nights of our own souls by praying, seeking God. Lord, we've heard your cry, I thirst. And of course, we see in that the real thirst of a dying man, but we also see a call to his father from a soul that is thirsty and dry in our spiritual thirst. Lord, we admit we're thirsty. We join in this prayer. And today we've heard the shout of victory. It is finished. This divine drama is completed on the cross this climax this moment when your glory has been revealed and you lay down your life for us we thank you for salvation that has been attained and finally lord we've heard the prayer of your mother taught perhaps to you as a little boy a prayer of confidence a prayer of surrender and a prayer that we should make our own Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And so, Lord, thank you for the beauty, the majesty, and the wonder of the cross. Thank you. The cross was meant for us. And so in response to the sufficient, completed, glorious work of the cross, may our prayer be, Father, yes. Lord, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Lord, hear our prayer in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?